This is Downstream, a podcast by the Rocky Mountain Outlook, taking you behind the headlines. I'm Paul Clark, a reporter with the Outlook, and my guest this week is Adam Walker. Adam is a modern day explorer and owner of Camor Cave Tours. When he isn't taking people into nearby caves, he finds a time to explore other caves around the world. More recently, he returned from Mexico, where he was helping an international expedition of cave divers explore the eighth deepest cave in the world. Part of his trip included sleeping underground for days at a time. My guest next on the downstream. This podcast has been brought to you by Strides Canmore, the only dedicated running store in the Bow Valley. Located beside Starbucks in Canmore, they have an extensive selection of running shoes, apparel, and gear for all levels of runners and walkers alike. Over 35 models of running shoes to fit every size of foot. Check us out at stridescanmore.com. Thanks for uh, coming in today and uh, finding the time to come uh, share your story. Um, as I said in the intro there, you're the owner of Camor Cave Tours, but you also get the opportunity from time to time to go and, and follow your passion, which uh, I understand is exploring caves um, around the world. And uh, more recently, you were just down in, in Mexico, <laughs> where you uh, got to join an expedition of international cave divers uh, in an attempt to try to explore what could turn out to be one of the deepest caves in the world, if it indeed uh, turns out to be true. But I want to hand over things to you. Um, why don't we start from the beginning? How did you first learn about this expedition? Uh, so this group of, of cavers, I actually have done a couple other expeditions with, uh, starting in 2013. I went to the same area to the upper part of this cave system. And uh, I was there again as a support uh, caver to help carry their diving equipment down into the lower points of this cave. And there's a spot about 850 meters below the entrance where the, the, the cave is flooded with water. And they were diving through that to see if they could maybe push the cave a little bit farther. Um, <clears throat> I went to Spain with them in 2014. And then and they uh, sent out an invite to this expedition saying we're going to try and explore Peña Colorada, uh, which hasn't been touched since 1984. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it was pretty exciting to do cave diving and some dry caving and such a, an incredible place. So couldn't, couldn't turn that opportunity down. Right. So uh, tell me about uh, Pena, Colorado. I understand it could be part of a larger system. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing this correctly. The Sistema Hauleta. How do you pronounce the larger S cave? Uh, Sistema Wautla. There we go. Um, so tell me about this, this cave system. Wow, it's, a, it's got a quite a long history to it, probably starting in the 1960s with actually a, a group of, of Canadian cavers. Um, this area is, is world renowned for caves. And um, over time, since the 60s, we've, people have connected a number of different caves. And when we cr connect two known caves into one bigger cave, that's when it gets the term system, right? We get multiple entrances and multiple caves. Uh, and so this cave has just grown and grown and grown and and quickly achieved one of the, the, the deepest cave in the world status. Um, I think the total depth is over 1,570 meters from the highest known point to the lowest known point. And 
And of course, when they're looking at this cave, they're wondering, well, wonder where the water comes out. So they started to poke around in what was likely to be, you know, the, the spot the water exited. And uh, they found two caves, two possibilities. There's uh, what they term the Wautla resurgence, uh, the resurgence being where the water exits. And they used a, a process called dye tracing, where they introduce a chemical uh, into the cave water. And they're able to detect when the chemical comes, comes out of the cave. And so they made a positive connection between Sistema Wautla and the Wautla resurgence. So they know that connects. Last year, they went to explore the resurgence and found lots of new cave, but then the cave just closed right down. They weren't able to make a connection. So then they looked at uh, Cueva de la Pena Colorada, um, which was the second cave, not known to connect, but it's in the same place, going the same direction, high likelihood that it connects. And um, this one was last explored, like I said, 1984. And uh, just to introduce some terminology in, in caves and cave diving, there's these features called sumps, and these are flooded sections of cave. So in 1984, they had to dive through, uh, they reached their seventh sump. So seven spots where they had to dive through water um, before they were stopped by logistics and time and, and difficulty. Um, and a lot of that in 1984 was stopped due to, you know, technical difficulties, time, and just the kind of the, where technique and uh, equipment was at in that, at that time. Um, and so, and since then, the diving technologies and skills has really increased uh, over the last few years, uh, including the introduction of a, a technology called a rebreather, which, um, you know, has been around for a while, but it's been really refined to, to work in caves and, that just really allows divers to extend the amount of time they spend underwater. So that kind of opened the door to looking at Pena Colorada again. And uh, so the idea was to get back to Sump 7 and just see if maybe it does connect into Sistema Wautla, which would make it a really big cave. Right. Now, for most people who are uh, listening to this podcast, uh, the, the idea of a caving, but then putting water in the mix uh, sounds a bit like a, a crazy adventure, if I could say that. Um, you know, there's things like uh, claustrophobia, there's concerns about safety, um, all of those things. Talk to me, how do you how do you get mentally prepared to undertake such a massive expedition? So you wouldn't do this on your first caving trip, right? right. This, right. this wouldn't be your first go to cave. I mean, the cave itself is phenomenal. It's huge. Claustrophobia isn't wouldn't necessarily be an issue because it's so big. Um, we're talking passages on average, probably 15 meters high, 15 meters wide, right? We're talking walking down a mall. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it, it is big, it's challenging, it's, it's long. I mean, Sistema Wildlife itself is over 70 kilometers long. Um, to get to Sump 7 in Pina Colorada is over five kilometers of horizontal dry caving plus the diving, right? Um, so it's just practice. You know, we cave here, we do lots of caving exploration in, in Canada. Um, Canada is actually a really good, good training ground because our caves tend to be hard and technical and cold and there is diving. And um, so it is a really good training ground for something like that. But then you go to Mexico and the caves are nice and warm. I mean, I think the average temperature inside the cave was between 20 and 25 degrees. Uh, the water temperature is a lot warmer. And of course, like I said, there's more space. So um, it is nice to go from Canada to Mexico in that direction because it's a bit more comfortable. But then you throw in the diving, it does complicate things. Um, you know, like I said, there's five kilometers of dry caving and maybe 400 meters of diving, but probably 90% of the logistics and planning for this expedition goes into the diving part of it because it's such a complicating factor. 
everything that goes to SUMP7 has to go through four different SUMPs now. We're able to bypass two of the SUMPs. So um, yeah, everything has to be packed into waterproof containers. It has to be uh, carried through the SUMPs and then carried between SUMPs. So you know, there's a lot of planning that goes into managing people, managing equipment. Um, you know, you have this expendable resource called air that you have to use in these sumps and you have to plan for enough air to get people through all the way to sump seven, right? And uh, so that itself becomes logistically challenging. So it's just a lot of juggling and, and figuring out. But. Right. So you mentioned you were part of the uh, the support team or you were seen as a support diver. Uh, how long did it take you to, from, you know, from entering the cave to setting up the first camp? that multiple days yeah so you know, i was there right at the beginning of the expedition so there's a little bit of waiting time to get permission into the cave and uh, you know first couple of days we're just hauling equipment down to um to the cave so uh we were, had a little base camp at a, a house a ranchito in a tiny little town called loma grande staying with a family and uh had all of our equipment equipment there and then we basically do day trips down to the cave and just hauling dive cylinders and and lead like lead weights uh, <laughs> nothing fun about hauling lead weight in backpacks for a couple hours um food and and all this stuff just to prepare and then we go back and we camp at base camp and then once we had enough at the cave then we would plan to do a camp in the cave and it's a lot more efficient if you can stay at the cave to shuttle equipment you can just do multiple trips back and forth so it's a lot of staging so we might go from base camp to the entrance and the entrance to sump two and then sump two to camp. Um, so we're doing little shuttling trips. Uh, so if you were to do it in a single push from say base camp to camp one, the trip would probably take you maybe five hours, six hours, including hiking and diving and prep and all that stuff. Um, with equipment, hauling equipment, doing all the shuttling, it's pretty full days, eight, nine, 10 hour days, doing that kind of stuff. Right. Describe to me, what does a camp underground look like? Oh, it's so variable. Um, <laughs> I was I was very spoiled in my first expedition to Mexico because the, the camp we were in in Sistema Huautla uh, was huge. It was this giant room called the Sala Grande de la Mazateca, and it's must have been 20, 30 meters high, uh, maybe 30, 40 meters wide, big, sandy, flat area for camping. And uh, so in that case, we just basically had sleeping bags and sleeping pads laid out and... Uh, an area for cooking, kind of like you'd camp outside in, you know, on a, on a backpacking trip, except it's always dark. <laughs> so, um, but it, it kind of lends itself well to sleeping because it's always dark. So, and it's quiet. Um, in Pena, Colorado, the first camp, camp one is very much like that. Sandy, dry-ish. Um, you're always dealing with a little bit of drips and a bit of water, but um, yeah, quite a comfortable camp. And uh Camp two is not so much. Um, camp two, which is just above sump seven, um, is rocky. There's no flat ground. So the cavers are sleeping in hammocks. They basically install bolts in the walls, clip hammocks to the walls, and they're sleeping in hammocks in order to, to get a comfortable night's sleep. So it's a very um, uh, rugged type camping, if you could describe it like that. Yeah, it's pretty simplistic. We really try to minimize how much we're taking through because everything you take through again has to be dived through, right? So um you basically the expedition has a set of sleeping bags and it's kind of like hot bunking <laughs> one one crew will come out and the next crew will arrive and so you're always accounting for how many spots you have so we would have five or six sleeping bags so at most we'd have five or six people in camp and uh it's it's rugged it's a little bit bare bones but it's quite comfortable as well so right 
Now, you mentioned that uh, you're always in darkness mm -hmm. 24-7. Uh, how many days did you actually spend uh, physically underground? And, and how do you cope with, without sunlight? It's, again, something you get used to. Um, the idea of camping underground for some folks is a little intimidating. Um, but, uh, you know, being, do, doing what I do as a job, it, we tend to spend a lot of time underground, so you get used to it. Um, and, you know, we say the cave's dark, but we always have headlamps on, right? And the modern headlamps are so bright, it's like walking around in daytime. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, while the cave is dark, and when you turn your lights off, it's 100% dark. Like, there's zero light. Um, but when you're moving and doing things, it's, you know, it's reasonable. You get used to it. Um, but there's, it definitely takes some adjustment time. There's a quote unquote condition called the rapture of the deep, which is for somebody who's spending a lot of time underground, you, you start to get psychologically just put off and you really just need to get outside. And there have been issues with people, you know, getting injured, you know, so we, we try and keep our, our camps to as short as possible. Right. Um, and I've never experienced that, 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 uh, feeling at all, but so when I was there, because we were still in the process of setting up camps and set and establishing the dives, um, all the dives had to be rigged with lines through them. So there wasn't uh, any really long camps. Uh, I would do, in my first camp, I think we did two nights. And the second, I just did a single night um, <clears throat> with a lot of day trips in between. Um, once we had camp one established and the sumps uh, two, three, four, and five all aligned, they were able to do a much longer camp. And I think they were in for 10 consecutive days. So this was just after I had left, left the cave. So it really is going to depend on needs, right? So again, back to the idea that we have this expendable resource. You don't want to make any extraneous trips through the sumps than you have to um, because you're using up your air. And um, we have to be a bit more efficient on that. And to make trips to the cave, you're spending days doing that, right? So if you can just stay in camp comfortably and do what you need to do, do the work, uh, it's a lot more efficient than trying to constantly go in and out of the cave right so, now you must rely also a lot on uh, on clocks to remind you that oh yeah i've slept for eight hours or maybe it's time for dinner because you don't have that natural daylight to mm -hmm. tell you sort of what time it is definitely yeah and that's one of the tricks to kind of getting past that that feeling of you know overwhelming <laughs> um that the rapture is uh, trying to maintain that regular schedule that's that's partially logistics too because we're also like i said we're, we're swapping with teams we have a team on the surface that be planning to come in at a certain time of course they're on daylight <laughs> so they they're on a specific schedule we have to maintain that so that we can plan to meet them at a certain point trade off equipment make sure that their bunks are available to them but if you didn't use a clock you quite easily you could sleep for 12 14 16 hours and never know um you could be caving for the same and the only you know your body would say i'm hungry but you <laughs> Um, yeah, you would have no idea what time it is outside. Right, right. Um, so I understand that the expedition is actually still ongoing because mm -hmm. it's a two-month um, process and, yeah. and you were there just for about two and a half weeks in total in, in the sense of leaving Canada and going to Mexico and returning. Uh, where are things at currently? Have they started to uh, push, as, as it's called, uh, through pump, uh, Sump 7? They have. They have Because they've been underground for this long camp, we haven't had too many updates, but uh, they've established uh, Sump, or sorry, Camp 2 at Sump 7. Um, one of the complications at Sump 7 is that you have to repel 55 meters free-hanging into a huge pool of water with nowhere to stand. And so in order for them to prepare for diving, they had to set up um, these temporary uh, platforms, kind of like a portal edge, if you're familiar with that term. Basically, it's a, 
It's made out of aluminum poles with stretched fabric in between, and it's tensioned and anchored into the walls, and that gives them a, a flat place to to set up their equipment, get dressed, um, build, they put their rebreathers together. So just doing that required time and days and rigging. Um, so as far as I know, they're in the water, they're pushing right now. We should have updates very soon uh, as to what they're accomplishing. Right. Now, one of the questions I didn't get to ask you earlier, but I think it's uh, important, and when we've spoken about it earlier, is, is the fact that essentially you're, you're wet the entire time. You do have moments where you can dry off, but what, what is it like to be constantly wet or moist or damp? Um, you get used to it again. Because we're diving so regularly, we're caving in wetsuits, which is pretty common in wet caves. Um, you know, I, I, it wasn't the, the wetness that bothered me so much, so much as the fact that it's just warm. Um, when you're in a wetsuit and you're moving through a cave that's 20, 25 degrees Celsius and you're carrying heavy equipment, you're getting pretty darn toasty. So um, anytime there was an opportunity to jump in some water, you take advantage of it just to cool down. So then you're wet again. Um, but like you said, the, the one chance we do have to get dry is at camp. So we'd, we'd, at the very least, we'd have a set of dry clothes that we could change out of the wetsuits, um, put on dry clothes for sleeping. Um, but it was quite miserable putting those wetsuits back on again in the morning. Uh, that was probably the one thing we looked forward to the least. <laughs> yeah. Was there anything unexpected that happened while you were down there that sort of caught you by surprise? You know, it, it surprisingly all went to plan. <laughs> um, very few glitches considering. I mean, you expect, you know, having to be, you know, fairly flexible with, with plans. But, um, you know, I think everything went as planned or even better than planned because, uh, yeah, we, uh, I know we had expected sump four and five to be quite difficult to navigate. Very complicated sump, and it went through in the first try, so that was a nice surprise. Um, the one, the big surprise was uh, a feature called the Grand Lagoon, um, which in 1984 was a swim. You could, it was a swim with a low roof, but you didn't have to do any diving. Well, this year we got there, and uh, we almost thought we were in the wrong place because we couldn't swim through it. And... Um, this added a glitch because we hadn't planned for a new sump. We hadn't stationed any diving equipment. And so what we ended up having to do was bring up some diving equipment from sump three, rig a line through um, this, this low or short sump uh, so that we could shuttle equipment through to camp one, which was just on the other side. So it had a bit of a complication, but it actually went quite smoothly. Um, and it was so short that um, when you weren't hauling equipment, you could breath hold you just basically hold your breath and duck through because there's a rope and you can haul yourself through it. So some folks were doing that, I know. Now I've heard that the water levels have dropped enough that it is back to being just a swim. Um, so it just shows how dynamic the whole system is. It changes over time. Yeah. Now the, the photos that I've seen and you've mentioned here a couple of times is the, the ropes that help sort of guide you through these sumps. Were those ropes already in place from 1984 or were, no. did you originally have to do that? <clears throat> so the thing with these caves is when in rainy season they flood and anything that's left in them is, is absolutely destroyed. So to the point where uh, solid steel um, bolts put in the walls have been worn out entirely um, and had to be replaced because of just the water action. So none of the ropes were there. And that's, that's one of the processes of the exploration is you have to, um, the rebreather divers would be the ones setting the lines through the, through the sumps so the rest of us could then follow. And that's one of the practices in cave diving is you always have a line from air to air, right? So we have something to follow. Um, but yeah, it, uh, when we had got to the Grand Lagoon, that was another process. We had to install ropes there and there'd never been ropes there. So that was a new, we don't know, didn't know what to expect. But again, it went all went really nice and smoothly and, and um, yeah, we're progressing nicely. Perfect.
Now, uh, just uh, wrapping things up here, is this something that you would uh, do again? Oh, in heartbeat. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's amazing. Like, these caves are just beautiful spaces. They're so interesting. Um, being in Mexico, in that part of Mexico, it's, it's not the Mexico most people would picture. I think it's very remote. It's up in the mountains. The people are amazing. Living with the family, they're incredible people. Um, and doing this, being part of this, what's really been probably a 50-year you know, project is, is, you know, it's quite an honor to do something like that. So yeah, I'd be back there in a heartbeat if I could. Perfect, Adam. I will uh, leave it there. Thank you for coming in today and sharing your story. Um, it uh, sounds like an incredible experience and an incredible adventure. And um, yeah, hope to uh, talk to you about your next one. Look forward to it. Downstream is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Outlook, located in the heart of the beautiful Bow Valley. This podcast was recorded at our newspaper studios in Canmore, produced and audio engineered by Aaron Toombs, and published by Jason Lyon. For more from the Outlook, you can visit our website at rmoutlook.com.